This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of Eberron as a tabletop RPG setting. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Serrano. And I'm Keith Baker. And we are at DragonCon 2019. Keith, how's it been for you so far? Uh, It has been pretty good. I've had a lot of panels, a lot of good discussions, got to hang out with a lot of people I like. It's pretty noisy, but hopefully you guys can't hear that. Yeah, or maybe you can, and you can just enjoy it with us either way. Exactly. (laughs) So uh, you've done quite a few panels. Seven so far. Seven so far, and you've got more to come. I do. Um, I've had the opportunity to sit on a couple of those, and some I didn't get to, so I'm going to apologize for that. Uh, yeah, I'm holding it against you. I, I figured. Like, what's figured. the story? Just everything else. What's more important? No, I had to go to the Chernobyl panel. That was a bigger deal. I know. I'm a jerk. I, I would have gone I'm to the Chernobyl a panel. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so a couple of the ones I got to sit on. Uh, first of all, the big one that everybody's going to want to know about, and we'll, we'll have as a bonus episode, is that's right. the uh, Ebron and 5th Edition panel. Yep. So uh, that was you kind of talking about what's happening this year or what's happened in the past year, what's happening this year with Eberron in 5th edition, uh, one of which was the reveal of the title for your project, for Project Raptor. Exploring Eberron. Which I think is a fantastic title, by the way. Well, I've always, uh, the last couple of years, whenever I've done a panel uh, about Eberron, I've always called it Exploring Eberron with Keith Baker. And we're like, well... Why isn't that the title? Because <laughs> right. it is what we're doing. You know, the point of the book is to delve into a number of areas and subjects that have never really been explored uh, in sufficient depth. Uh, so there you have it. That's cool. And it's not, in fact, 300 pages of dinosaurs, as some people had hoped. Oh, man. Well, well, so much for that. I'm not buying it. That's it. I'm done. Uh, no, I think I think uh, some of the stuff you talked about uh, when you when we when we did manifest zone to talk about it a little bit, that's exciting. You divulged a little bit more mm-hmm. during the panel. Uh, what were some of those additional things that you talked about? Uh, uh, let's see. So one of the things I, I talked about a bit uh, is that we're going to talk some about uh, some of the cults that have never really been talked about. So in particular, you know, there is a section on religion. Uh, and that one of the topics is the cults of the dragon below, uh, which are always just sort of thrown out as, I don't know, it's a bunch of crazy people. Uh, and the point is we say, oh, they're associated with the Dalkir or the overlords, and yet those are very different. And then even within them, well, we've never really discussed... There's little pieces dropped here and there that the point is a cult associated with Curzon doesn't, you know, sort of revere or draw on the other Delkir. So let's talk about those. You know, we've talked about Curzon's cult. We've talked about Belashira a little bit, but we've never talked about uh, Dern the Corrupter uh, or, or Lask. Um, we've never really talked about, let's say, a cult associated with Sol Katesh. Uh, the Keeper of Secrets. Uh, and so that certainly is a topic. You know, again, I am going to talk about the Blood of All. I am going to talk about the Silver Flame. But I'd say that that's a piece that is okay. We've never really talked yeah. about what's during the Corruptor's cults look like. I think that's great because uh, I think one of the misconceptions in uh, Eberron is that the Cult of the Dragon Below is this homogenous, singular thing. But it really is just sort of a catch-all for all the crazy cultists that are out there mm-hmm. worshipping strange and dark things that dwell in Kyber, um, or above Kyber in mm-hmm. some cases. Um, so I think that'll be 
that will interest a lot of people, and I think that's going to help a lot of people in terms of how do they use the cult of the dragon below. Um, and and part of it to me in particular is, you know, it is the case that the cults of the dragon below can also literally be any random thing that sort of springs up out of nowhere, uh, but it is sort of talking about the established cults uh, and also the fact that, you know, these are things that have persistence and presence. Uh, it's something that should help the game master in terms of coming up with little ideas of, ooh, what can I do with this group? Uh, but also part of the point is to say, if you wanted to be a warlock or a barbarian or something like that tied to one of the cults, here's some ideas. You know, this is a viable character. Right. That uh, the cults are generally seen as dangerous because the forces that they revere are generally dangerous forces, but that doesn't actually mean they're inherently world-destroyingly evil. Right, you right. Know? Um, so I think it will, you know, as I said, it's just one of those points. It's not that it's vital, uh, but nonetheless, it is a thing that we have never discussed in depth. You know, it's like the planes, well, we know they're out there. We've given them a couple paragraphs here or there, and yet we've never given you enough to really make them compelling and like the heart of a story. And this will hopefully do that. So so speaking of planes and Cult of the Dragon Below, um, there was something else that you talked about that gave me thought about uh, sort of some interactions with the rest of the D&D multiverse. One is that, the, that Eberron's planar cosmology is actually considered now a sphere Mm-hmm. Within the larger D and D multiverse, sort of isolated, right. whether mm-hmm. it was created by the by the progenitors or some other force, um, but it is sort of isolated, but still penetrable, right, from other worlds as well. Uh, so you gave the example of Asmodeus, for example, possibly c- coming to Asmodeus, everyone. Yes, Asmodeus, <laughs> yes. And uh, so my thought, when as soon as you said that, I was thinking, okay, we've got Cult of the Dragon below, we've got Overlords, we've got the Lords of Dust. What kind of dynamic might that create if, say, for example, some of these uh, demon overlords or these demons coming over? Well, this is, of course, the approach I took in 4th edition. Mm -hmm. uh, Because 4th edition sort of squeezed Bator into the setting without really any explanation. Uh, And when I finally wrote an Ion Eperon article about it... I suggested, oh, Bator is in a plane. It's a demi-plane that's been created as a prison. It's where all the sort of essentially planar outcasts have been thrown. Uh, and that until roughly the morning, uh, they have been imprisoned. Mm-hmm. And that around the morning, the, the sort of ripples, if you will, of the morning sort of actually created essentially a prison uprising. Right. Uh, and this idea that Asmodeus until recently was a prisoner but is now an active power recruiting force. Same concept as if you said, oh, he's just shown up from another plane. It was, it was nonetheless that idea of saying what makes this interesting is to say this is not an ancient evil that sages know about and that whatever he's doing, you know, even Dalcor, even these things, these are concepts we understand. And that will make it interesting is to say no one knows what this thing is or what it wants. That if he's showing up, you know, empowering warlocks and creating cults, what is he trying to do? And again, both, you know, anything from the Dreaming Dark to the dragons, you know, the chamber are going to be saying, who is this? Where they're coming from? What is their agenda? What's what's the end game? And... 
to me, that's kind of an interesting twist off of these other powers that have been part of the cosmology for tens of thousands of years, you know, since the dawn of time. Yeah. Uh, and the idea of that purely alien outsider, uh, not in a way as alien as the Dalkir, and yet also in a way as, you know, currently inscrutable. Right. Uh, and that, uh, as I say, it's not something I personally plan to, to do, you know, and this is the point about incorporating Eberron into the multiverse. The, the key point there is saying, yeah, but if you're just an Eberron player, you can just say, wards are holding strong, everything's great, right. you know, there is no traffic between them. Right. It's an option for the people who want it, but I personally don't have any intention in, yeah. in creating that kind of traffic in my campaign. No, I, just, I think I'm in the same boat. Yeah. So I guess, I guess what I'm thinking of is, like, if we're thinking of, like, power level between, like, say, you know, the power level of, like, an overlord that's trapped in Kyber versus, say, you know, Asmodeus yeah, or Orcus. Yeah, and, and or overlords are a tricky thing. Because mm -hmm. uh, they're, like, you know, elder powers, even if right? you stat them, you know, part of the point to me is that overlords are supposed to be in third edition when we statted them. We called them out as being about equivalent to a divine rank of seven. And, you know, part of the point to me is whatever you stat the, the you know, the actual entity you are interacting with as, they are supposed to be able to shape reality in a sort of significant way. That it is that ultimately with a sphere of influence that could cover an entire nation. And that that is the point is whatever you say about Rakhtol Kesh's uh, combat stats... He's also just going to be causing riots and uh, aggression across a nation. Right. And that's the part that I think gets a little lost when we try and, and sort of measure these stats is could Asmodeus beat Raktolkesh in a fist fight? Mm -hmm. Maybe. I don't know. Right. But that doesn't change the fact that even if he could beat him in a fist fight, so what? The overlords are immortal, and he'd be back in and, eight yeah, hours. Exactly. You know, and yeah. so... And, and just their presence has influence. Right. Without direct interaction, even. Like, right. Yeah. And that's that's sort of the whole thing we've always said with the overlords. Is it's this sort of, they're not gods, but at the same point, they are just inherent parts of the framework of reality. Right. And that this is the thing, is it's the little bit like, you know, the barbarian fighting the ocean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That the reason you can't kill them is because they're just part of reality. And, you know, finding a way to let them exist and yet not be able to do anything, which is right. to say binding them, right. is your best possible outcome. Right. So as I said, to me, the sort of question of, of again, uh, could Orcus beat Solkatesh is sort of an irrelevant point because no, no, I, you yeah. know it's, it's I guess it's more of like if 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 we're introducing them into the ecosystem right. what would the relationship be and, you know? and this is my point is if I brought Orcus into Eberron yeah. I'd still highlight the fact that he's an outsider he's not part right. of the structure of reality right and whereas Katashka is right uh, and you know so one might be more powerful in a direct fight, mm -hmm. but Katashka has more influence mm -hmm. over the world in right. a way that Orcus would not. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but, I mean, you know, these are questions people will be able to answer at some right. point. Right. So, 
Um, I will say that the overlords are not as much of a focus of exploring Eberron in part, you know, basically, so we're talking about the cults. Right. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there's, there's, I would love to do something in the future that does yeah. delve more into the powers of Eberron, if you will. Right. Uh, but this is more about sort of things like the plains, like the oceans, right. you know, sort of wider parts of the world the things that we've that never gotten to use. player characters might actually be interacting with more exactly. regularly. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, you know, part of the idea is also to give you ideas as a player, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for either how could this affect my character personally or even going to the planes. It's just this idea that manifest zones, as you know, we should know, uh, <laughs> manifest zones are a big deal. Yeah. That manifest zones are part of the natural resources of the world. One of the things I said in the talk is the fact that we talk about, you know, we all know that Sharon is on a Serenia manifest zone, uh, but that, frankly, most of the major cities of Eberron are probably on manifest zones. Right. And some may not have as dramatic effects, but, you know, one of the main things about uh, Lamania, we've already called out, I think Dreadhold is on a Lamania manifest zone because what we've said is it actually keeps uh, it both keeps water pure right. and it uh, makes the stone almost impenetrable. Nice, yeah. Uh, and, you know, again part of what this is going to do is talk about the different kinds of effects a manifest zone can have and I'd say Lamania in particular is actually probably a pretty common mm-hmm. manifest zone to build a city on because it's going to help fertility, help right. you know things like that. Life oriented yes, type exactly. things. Yes, yeah. exactly. Lamania and Irian, you know, these are things that have generally positive effects yeah. as opposed to Mabar where people generally shun these regions right. and this is why you have the gloaming is you know a dark right. area on the map. Um, Irian on the other hand Right. Uh, whereas even uh, even Thalanus is one that even while they're quite common, people to a large degree are going to sort of leave alone because right. it's unpredictable and you don't want to actually disappear, you know, into right. the Fae while you're going down to the store to grab a cookie. Right. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, you could get cookies from that magic tree. Yes, that's true. Um, magic mushrooms and all. Yeah. Uh, so... So that's the kind of thing I want to talk about yeah. is is you know thinking about those and so you're also going to talk about planes of Reborn. Are we going to see Keebler elves uh, no. coming out of Thalanus at all? Oh, no, I'm afraid we're not. Oh, okay. uh, but on the other hand, <laughs> there is the point to me, and this is a big point of the Green Singers, yeah. is there is the idea that in places close to Thalania manifest zones, you will have people who have more of a working relationship with the Fae. Right. That the the classic idea of you know leave a saucer of milk and your your busted shoes out, and maybe they'll you know someone will come along and fix them. Mm-hmm. That kind of idea is something that people do do right. in certain parts of the world. Oh, that's neat. And yeah. that, that's the kind of thing, you know, so in one of my iterations, I've run a couple different versions of my Kabarian campaign. Uh, and the whole idea there is this is a little town in the edge of, of civilization. Uh, and the basic premise I always start the group off with is where we're going to need a sheriff and we're going to need a preacher. And if one of you wants to take that role, do it. Um, and that defines a certain amount of the town. Uh, and one of the things I say is basically, whoever, if you're playing the preacher, whatever your faith is, I'm going to say about a third of the town follows that. Right. Because that's why they're here. Right. And so one of those campaigns, you know, the person was a green singer. 
Hmm. And and that the whole sort of premise was, uh, in fact, two of those campaigns, I think we've had green singers. And it's actually sort of the idea that this is a group of people from the five nations who sort of follow the, the concept of, uh, you know, the precepts of the green singers who have sort of come out here to have their own little... Yeah. you know community right, right. and that they're not from the Eldine but mm-hmm. they're basically like well we want our own town and there's opportunity out here um, part of the whole point of that idea is that the preacher one of their main roles is that they are the ambassador between the community and the local fey powers nice uh, and and that it is that they believe what you want to do is live in harmony and that we can help each other and right. uh, and anyhow so that's the kind of thing uh, that we're going to talk about more right right so planes of Eberron uh, again more interaction with the planes with the entities of those planes yep and um, do you have more to say about that or I, I have don't other think so I think we got lots of other topics yeah to get yeah to. Uh, so you also mentioned uh, the Ocean Kingdoms yeah. of Ebron, which yep, yep. is people have been clamoring for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in that, you spoke a lot about uh, the dynamics uh, re- between those kingdoms and, say, the surface kingdoms. Yeah. And uh, and, and you even mentioned the hint that you uh, dropped about that in your book, uh, The Shattered Land. When yeah, The crossing. Shattered Land, they do have an interaction right. with the Suwagan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, essentially sort of trying to think what the right word would be you could say guide but part of the point there is it's not so much that they're telling them where to go they're essentially guiding them on this is the path that has been approved for you right do not stray uh (laughs) right and that it's the combination of well you're paying off you're paying your passage and you've got the guy who's gonna show you the way uh because it is that idea of saying that essentially it's it's almost the equivalent of the panama canal right we're saying well this is the route that you are allowed to take through our territory because we don't want you just driving you know you you can't just fly any fly over anywhere in our country right and that's really the way to look at it is Mm -hmm. what we see as boats they see as planes and yeah. it's the same degree of, well, do we let people fly over? You know, we right. have res- no fly zones. We're going to have a no boat zone. Nice. That's true. Cool. Uh, any other particular things that you want to highlight regarding uh, exploring Eberron? No, I think uh, it's good. Okay. You know, again, we'll certainly be revealing more uh, about it uh, from KB Presents and KeithBaker.com. Yeah. We'll have some more sort of little sneak peeks in the months ahead. And we got some artwork that you've been showing. Oh, it's very, yeah. you know, uh, Wayne's doing a run- wonderful job of organizing and, uh, yeah. you know, doing the art direction. That's great. Awesome. Good job, Wayne. Good job. All right. So uh, one of the other sessions I got to sit in on uh, was the one about dungeons. Mm-hmm which I thought was really interesting. So oh, I'm, so you saw that one? I did see that one, oh, yes. All right, all right. Yeah, and I thought that was really good. Uh, I've mentioned to you in, in conversations about a setting I'm working on, uh, but we're looking at ancient ruins as mm-hmm, dungeons. Mm-hmm. And so what I, what I thought was interesting was um, the idea of constructing dungeons in a certain context that they had practical effects, you know, mm-hmm. pra- practical roles. Like yes. Even, even you know, half-joking about bathrooms or restrooms. Oh, sure, yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's the uh, question: yeah. Is was this an inhabited space? Right, right. Uh, and if it was, one would assume it has the amenities to support, right? You know, habitation. Whereas, on the other hand, other things like if something is a temple, well, it may not have actually been designed to support a community. Right. It served a specific purpose. A container or a place for ritual. Or yeah, exactly. And yeah. and to me, with mm-hmm. any dungeon, there is that question of 
why was this originally built right, and right. how is that reflected yeah. by what you're dealing with. Now, part of the point is you come to ancient uh, dungeons, and one of the things I'll say is this is one of the things I thought was covered well in the fourth edition Eberron campaign guide, mm-hmm. is there is a section that talks about the different kinds of dungeons, you know, the difference between giant ruins, Dakani ruins, things from the Age of Demons, mm-hmm. uh, and that is the point to me. If it's ancient ruins, how ancient? Because there's a big difference between uh, goblin ruins yeah. and uh, demon ruins. Right. And the other point is, especially when you're getting to things that ancient, has someone else moved in in the intervening time? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, basically, do we even realize that mm-hmm. these are demon ruins? Or do we think right. that they're goblin ruins because the goblins built on the demons? And, you know, it's only if you go far enough down that you break down into the foundation and say, oh, oh, wow, there's a thing down here we didn't know about. Yeah. Uh, a good example, I think. Not so much the mysterious, I didn't know about this thing, right. but uh, uh, the adventure uh, Grasp of the Emerald Claw with mm-hmm. the drow inhabiting the ancient giant ruin. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's you know. definitely the case in, in Zendrick. That yeah. in a lot of cases, if you have giant ruins, unless... If they have sat empty for over 10,000 yeah. years, then the question is, why have they sat empty? You right. know, there's got to be something really bad <laughs> that keeps being people from, yeah, something, something that being, keeps people yeah. from coming here. Yeah. Um, and otherwise, what you're getting is, is basically both are there parts they've never touched because they're really dangerous, or you're actually really dealing with a drow dungeon that just happens to be in giant... Uh, areas, and I mean, I think Jason Bowman talked about you know example he gave in that same thing was oh we got the old ruined castle up there with the kobolds in it, but a the point is the kobolds just moved in you right. know two years ago, uh, and beyond that it may be that oh the kobolds just poked down below and opened a gate they shouldn't have right. and really your problem is not kobolds the, the Balrog you know within. exactly yeah, right, right um but I mean Moria is the perfect example of that of mm-hmm. it's a dwarven mine. Right. So you've got that concept as your basic architecture framework, the kinds of mm-hmm. things you're dealing with, but then you're dealing with orcs because right. they have taken it over, and then you're dealing with the Balrog because you're like, oh, crap, right, right. you know. Or whatever else is dwelling in Kyber right. below. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and that that sort of concept of, uh, you know, not just what was it, but what is it now, and again... If there's things still there, mm-hmm. why are they still there? Right, right. Uh, and I will say that this was a big design thing with Eberron. Is yeah. one of the concrete decisions behind the morning in the first place is you know that it would be slightly weird for there to be tons of dungeons mm-hmm. in civilized nations that have been civilized for a thousand years, and like why haven't these ruins been dealt right. with? And that with the last war in general, and the morning specifically, part of the thing about the morning is it took that nation and turned it into the world's biggest dungeon. Right, right. And that it has taken this whole region that until previously was completely civilized and safe uh, and said, now it's a magical wasteland filled with terrible things. And of course it's full of treasure because it's full of literally everything that a nation had. Right. Every, the every richest valuable nation, jewel and uh, Up until now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, yes, you've got art. You've got family heirlooms. You've got, yeah. you know, things created by Kenneth over the years. Right. Whitehearth. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. And that it's this great explanation 
for mm. how you can have a dungeon loaded yeah. with awesome treasure that somehow other groups of adventurers have not yet found and taken. Right, and I think you even gave examples of like you could take a town, for example, and yeah. every building could be its own dungeon, so to yeah. speak, because you're tr- you know exploring each room and, and, and so on. Yeah. Uh, and to me, you know, what makes the Mornland dungeons interesting is because there you're really dealing with what was this before, right? And that it's kind of tragic. Yeah. You know, like there's this whole question of when you're delving around in a Dakani dungeon, you do realize that you are essentially a tomb robber. Right. Like, and when you get that magic sword, well, that was a great Takani hero's magic sword. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, and uh, whereas with the Mornland, it's, no, this was actually a Syrian nobles, like, I mean, literally two years ago two or years four ago. years right. ago, it was right. this guy's, you know, these yeah. treasures. Yeah. Um, and it just has a sort of different mm-hmm. flavor. Uh, and of course, rather than being uh, anything else, it's it's salvage. You know, one can argue it's salvage instead of tomb robbing. Right, right. So, uh, just to kind of connect this a little bit with uh, exploring Eberron, um, the Demon Waste are sort of another mega dungeon type of concept. Yep. Do you plan to expand on that a little bit? I would like to. I will say it's not something that's covered in depth in exploring Eberron. Okay. It is certainly an area, it could have been. Right. You know, it is certainly an area that has not been developed enough that I have a lot of ideas about that I've, you know, done some posting on my website. Right. Uh, You know, to me it is that whole, it's studded with portals to different demiplanes in Kyber. Uh, And it is certainly something I would like to do at some point. Basically, with uh, exploring Eberron, you know, there is simply a limit to what I have, There's you so know, much time and such. Yeah. You know, we're already, you know, at least 180 pages. Right. Right. Uh, so, basically, it is certainly a topic I want to explore, but it just didn't make the cut here. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, the other session I got to sit on was <laughs> monster building. Mm-hmm. with, And that was with Jason Bullman as well. Yep. Highly entertaining, by the way. Good, because I thought the uh, the whole th- the Beatles liches theme, all the way down. Yeah, liches all the way down, and Beatles everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, again, that was fascinating for me because there's always like the monsters, like let's take the troll and do this with it, or you know the humanoid type monsters. But then there's the monsters that are like the more like um, naturally occurring beasts mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. such. Like so, you, you know the owl bear. Jason Bowman talked about I the owl bear, right? Uh, and he talks about the screech that he added, you know. As and, a thing. and I love that too, because what I love about what Jason said specifically, looking to the owl bear, is that point of even though they're taking a classic D and D thing, mm-hmm. the risk of a monster is: do you just basically say this is a sack of hit points with a couple attacks tacked on, and like there's nothing interesting yeah. about this? Like, why is it, you know? Uh, as Jason, you know, his core thing was saying like, oh, and you run at the owlbear and then it screeches at you and that's a terrible thing. And you're like, yeah, of course, of that course it sense. should. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't I see that coming? Right. That, uh, right. Right. And I think that we're just kind of spoiled in a way of that in many editions, there are a lot of monsters that are just, and this is another thing that'll try and bite you. Yeah, claw, claw, bite. Right? Yeah, yeah, and that uh, I'm a big fan of the let's find yeah. ways to make that more interesting. Yeah, and you had some interesting uh, takes on that, I, I thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the what was it the was it the lich that left a, a tooth in? Oh, oh, yeah. I was like just that. saying that's a creature I've used, uh, yeah. and I've used variations of that in a couple of different things. But it was a kind of ghoul, oh, right. and it was basically like a ghoul that uh, there was actually. I used to use when I first made it. There was a Dreamblade mini. 
And I think it was some kind of Wendigo, but it was basically this sort of humanoid figure whose mouth is like the length of its torso. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that was like the, yeah. the, the figure I originally put on the table for that. Uh, and, and the point was this ghoul whose sort of jaw wildly distends and its mouth is just studded with, like, shark's teeth, yeah. you know, uh, and that when it would bite people, uh, a tooth would get stuck right. uh, in, the, um, in their body. And then the, the twist is if you hit the ghoul, it splits equally the damage it takes between itself and anyone who has a tooth stuck in them. Right, right. Um, and and so it's this, ah, you got to get that tooth out before you, yeah. you really unleash on it. Uh, and it's always fun because usually what happens is someone comes in the room, ah, they get bit. And then the barbarian comes running in and uses, you know, or the paladin runs in and uses their huge smite attack right away because yeah. you're alpha striking. And, oh, half of that damage goes to Bob. And, right, you right. know, you're like, oh, oh. And then that, that realization that the players get, right. which adds like a dynamic element to the to the encounter and you get that realization of oh you know okay first usually it takes maybe two attacks before they really figure out what's going on uh then it has the oh wait what do we need to do to fix this yeah uh and besides just beat it to death and and this is the thing is what i love is things that make people stop and think Mm -hmm. and that the point is what that creature does is says okay, the strategy here is no longer unload your most powerful thing mm-hmm. because you can't if you're going to kill your friend with that. Right. Uh, and, and so what is it then? You yeah. know, is it that I just try and help the friend and, and fix them? How do I even do that? Is it that I try to uh, grapple or restrain? Right. You know, is there something else I can do that isn't going to cause a lot of damage but would be really useful in right. this moment? And there's a time element because every round is oh, sure. it's still doing stuff. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. And potentially yeah. bitten out more teeth. Right. Um, right. And the other point of it is what it's another case of having a creature that gets to it's it's sort of a variation of legendary actions or lair actions of taking a single creature who becomes an interesting uh, challenge for a group of players not because he gets so many attacks or because there's a whole group of him but because he's making your attacks his attacks Right. And and it's just that whole question of how do you make solo creatures right. an interesting challenge for a group of players. Uh, alternative ways to subdue them or rather right. than just direct damage. And uh, yeah, no, I think that's really fascinating. The I guess another question I had related to that is uh, Eberron introduced a few new uh, sort of exotic creature type mm-hmm. things. Um, are there any other like sort of concepts or th- things of that sort, uh, creature concepts that you've created in your Eberron campaign or that you may introduce in the future uh, sort of naturally occurring monsters Well, I mean, I don't such. know. I mean, I'll say, for yeah. example, that crazy, you know, the crazy ghoul there is yeah. from an Eberron adventure I oh, ran. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, and basically it's it's an Eberron one-shot I did where it's it's a sort of weird... Actually, I'm trying to think. I was going to say it was a weird Carnathy uh, ghoul created... Uh, there. Oh, it is a Carnathy ghoul. That's that's mm-hmm. right. The main villain isn't Carnathy, but it's something right. where they're definitely like, oh yeah, that's that's you know, there's a secondary character who's a Carnathy necromancer who is involved, yeah. and that's part of that idea of uh, necromancy as a military science. Right. You know, so like, what else did they create during the last war, specifically right. as weapons of war? Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and I will throw out just a random point for people interested in that topic. One of the concepts with this creature 
uh, was it basically had to stand on a particular... It was standing on a glyph that was keeping it alive. And oh. part of what was being said, or undead, as it were, part of what's said if you start doing your lore stuff, you know, is essentially, oh, the reason you don't see more of these things is because it has to sort of have this right. barring conduit to keep it going. Neat. Uh, and so, as I said, in introducing a new creature, right? Yeah. In introducing a new creature, one of those questions is, "Well, this thing's cool. Why don't they have you know, if Karnath could make these, why didn't they make them all over the place?" Right, right. Uh, whereas the answer is, "Oh, you'd find them essentially as sort of watchdogs, right. you know, but Confined they couldn't or, yeah. uh, just unleash them on the front lines." Right, right. Interesting. Um, and beyond that, you know, I certainly play around with quarry. Uh, I will say, and it's something I said in the uh, the talk as well, is a lot of times I'm going to take creatures that do exist and just reskin them. You mentioned the goblin thing. As oh, a really the good goblin example. thing. That was actually something from a previous campaign. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, and it was actually loosely inspired by an old old game called Element Masters that I'd be um, um, amazed if anyone had uh, heard of. But it was the idea of basically having the sort of sub, sub race of goblins that essentially, I'd like to say it's sort of like a wasp sting, uh, that they can sort of unleash a, you know, a force blast mm-hmm. uh, that sort of um, causes a, a, you know, it's sort of like a shotgun. Right. Like they've basically each of these goblins is carrying around a magical shotgun, but when they fire it, there's a 50-50 chance that they'll die. Right. And uh, the thing that's fun about it, so it means that they don't do it unless they feel severely threatened, like I've got nothing to lose, or unless they are just so pissed that they're willing to flip that coin mm-hmm. just to, uh, you know, spit in your eye. Right, right. And what's fun about it is, I said, this wasn't an Eberron campaign, but it was another campaign where as part of that point is it did have a similar thing where essentially you had these goblins... Uh, living as sort of second-class citizens in most major cities. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, And it was just that sort of point of these are people who are downtrodden, who are living tough things, who don't probably like you much anyway. Right, right, right. Uh, And it was the classic sort of D&D vibe of, okay, you're an eighth-level character. This is just a one-hit-die goblin. Right. And yet you have this whole thing in interactions with them of if there's three or four of them, they could really mess you up. Mm-hmm. And it's that whole thing of if you are going to hit one, you better take him down in one shot. Because if you almost kill him and don't, he's going to have, he's going to feel he's got no reason not to, right. not to just take this that chance. going to go down. All right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, similarly, even if you just start rooting them, some of the others yeah. are going to be like, eh, what the heck? At least I'm going to hurt you yeah. in the process. Right. And so, again, it's that fun sort of twist of saying these are, you know, one-quarter CR creatures equivalently, right. but with this one shot mm-hmm. that if you push them too far, you got to watch out for. Right, right. Um, so not just the typical, like, high hit points, high AC right. challenge where you're just whittling away at hit points. I mean, to you me, think about it, you know. to me, my sort of... In everything I do, you know, my sort of founding point in role-playing is are the players making interesting decisions? Mm-hmm. And to me, a creature where there's no decision, where it is just, I hit it, I hit it, I hit it, I hit it, I hit it. What, what should I do this turn? I guess I'll hit it. Yeah, right. That's not interesting. That's that not, doesn't make yeah. a fun story. You're just spending time at that point. Um, yeah. And the Beatles, just what we were talking about is, you know, we were talking, uh, example came up with like a mummy. 
and Jason was saying, oh, and then the big surprise, you're going to be fighting the mummy, and you're like, okay, I know what I'm doing, and then suddenly his bandages, like, start coming off and, you know, right. attacking you like tentacles, and, you know, you should have seen that coming, and it's like, great, and I'm like, oh, yeah, and, you know, let's say by the time he, when he drops to half his hit points, suddenly, like, it turns out, oh, you, like, you know, cut his guts open, and his guts come spilling out, but his guts are a swarm of flesh-eating beetles, yeah. and, you know, and just this idea that what I like about that is when you're fighting sort of a solitary but powerful foe, that idea that we're going to change things up. Mm -hmm. Like, you thought you were just dealing with a single high target, but suddenly, oh, now you're dealing with a swarm as well. Right, right. And, And yet visually from a story perspective i can imagine that oh we cut him right across the front and whoa all the stuff is spilling out right. it's an unnatural impossible number of beetles and yet that's what's happening out of the frying pan into the fire yeah. so to speak yeah uh, i i thought that was really interesting too because uh you know we've talked in the past about like you defeat the big bad and yet there's another bigger bad behind yep. that but in this case it's you know even if you you know the players get that lucky hit or whatever and they take out the big bad well guess what there's still something mm-hmm. challenging for the encounter right. you know and keeps it interesting and um, yeah and yeah and that, that as i said it's always the thing to me of i always just want the players to feel right like, as i said either they're making interesting decisions or they're at least interested they're right. you know it's that you want them to say oh i didn't see that coming and then as jason says but I should have seen, seen that coming. Come of course, that mummy's stuffed with beetles. <laughs> right, you know? exactly. Um, exactly. So there you have it. That's really cool. Uh, you did a couple other sessions, I mm-hmm. think, that I, I don't... Uh, so I did a, a session on a villains. I did the a villains session on uh, role-playing. Right. Uh, and what was the other one? Oh, and the other one was just like a general, more sort of industry, you know, oh, biz right. talk. Oh, right. That was Friday morning, I believe, yeah. right? Yeah. And that was, you know, again, interesting, yeah, but not industry. really tied yeah. to, to role-playing. And let's face it, Jason Bowman was there, so, you know, he had a lot right. more stuff to say about the state of the role-playing right. industry right now than I did. Yeah. So uh, so the villains, I, mi- I missed that. Mm-hmm. I apologize. Mm-hmm. Uh, sincerely, please forgive me. Oh, yeah. Know. No, I, uh, I, I forgive you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, so tell us a little bit about that. Like, what uh, what kind of things did you touch on? What were the highlights for you? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a number of, of, you know, in part, it comes back to what we've just been talking about. Of To mm. me, the point of a villain is, why is it interesting? Uh, I in part, it really depends on the kind of story you're telling because noir villains and pulp villains are very different. Yeah. That uh, to a certain degree with the pulp villain, it is fine to have the over-the-top mustache twirling, uh, you know, and this is sort of the point of the Blood of All. And well, not the Blood of All, but the Emerald Claw, certainly. Right. Is the Emerald Claw are supposed to be the Nazis in Indiana Jones. Right. You know, they are the group that we never have to stop and question. Right. Are we doing the right thing by, by fighting these right. guys? Exactly. Uh, but that many of the villains in Ebron are do fall into that category. Uh, and that, you know, the example I sort of gave there is specifically with the Lord of Blades. That the whole idea of the Lord of Blades is you may absolutely feel we need to stop this guy you know he's doing terrible things and yet at the same time you or especially the warforge in your group may say yeah but i kind of get where he's coming from right right there's a uh, lot of empathy that that he is representing a right. group of people who have a right to feel angry mm. and betrayed just for being brought into existence in the first place. And they were made as weapons of war, and they're basically like, well, then we're going to fight you, right. you know, jackasses. Right. Um, and that 
again, that in no way means that you're somehow going to be like, no, maybe this time we should let him blow up Sharn. You know, but it's more interesting because you're like, okay, but how do I show that he's wrong? Is he wrong from right. his perspective? Or his followers for that matter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's a bigger point is, you know, okay, so he's got, you know, this is part of the point. So when you're dealing with a big villain like that, how do you set things up beforehand? Mm-hmm. You know, and this is sort of the part of the thing of, of one of the examples that came up. I think we had Ken Height on the example, you know, on the panel is that when you're dealing with, you know, real world stories, as, as he often does, it's like when you just say, and the villain is Dracula, we all have all the emotional baggage and knowledge. Ooh, Dracula. We all know what that means. How is it that I get it to when we say it's Lady Elmero that you all go, ooh, Lady Elmero, uh-oh, we're in trouble now. Right. And that part of that has to come through both the reactions, you know, both encountering her followers and, like, what you get from them part of it can come through just dropping seeds as you go through of oh and you know you see that that painting of that horrific time when lady elmero you know froze uh that village in the you know the eastern edge of karnath and all they found were the the icy zombie corpses you know uh and so that when people finally say oh and and you're meeting her you're like oh crap oh that's no good um and that, that again, to have that villain that the players actually care about is going to take more than one encounter right. to really pull off. Right. And that's sort of transitioning from the monster to the villain. Right. You know, is the villain is someone who is memorable right. and, you know... Who and that's where really the recurring villain thing maybe can help. Certainly. And, you know, you know, one of the examples I called out there is one of my favorite things is the Dreaming Dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, because with the Dreaming Dark, the whole point is that a single uh, Dreaming Dark agent has multiple host bodies, mm-hmm. you know, multiple vessels. And that those vessels can be themselves varying levels of power. So at a low level, you can run into, you know, a particular host body and that person can give you trouble for a while and then you actually end up killing them and yay, we won! Until they turn up in an even more powerful host body three episodes later and oh, you deal with that and yay, we won! And then they mind control your mom. I mind seed your mom and you're like, oh, now what do you do? You know, because you can't kill your mom. Uh, right. you, it's you like know. a zombie trip of like, right. you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and, and that is, you know, the thing is, recurring villains are, you know, one of my favorite things. The, the Dreaming Dark is one of the easiest ways to right. handle that, as opposed to having to always come up with how does Alice Martin escape this escape, time. Right, exactly. You know. You know the heroes never die, but neither do the villains, right? Right. And, uh, and you know, that's one of the things I even said there is I'll call out, you know, one of those cases is you can always throw at the players and say, how do you think he survived this time? Right. You know, what was it last time you didn't right. think of? Or, or maybe he's you know, just a bunch of changelings. Yeah, you know? exactly. So, how do you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was frankly something uh, I actually did in uh, Goodman Games, the complete guide to doppelgangers. Yeah. Uh, which is something that you could certainly adapt to the Cabinet of Faces, was this idea that you had a group of, in that case, doppelgangers, who essentially had a well, a memory well, mm-hmm. uh, that where they would store memories, and they'd come and you'd, you'd sort of update the server, if right. you will, right. and that any other member of that particular you know, uh, sect 
could essentially download. Uh, you know, essentially what I've talked about in, in Eberron is personas. Right. The idea is the persona is where we have like a backup, a, you know, a psychic backup somewhere. And I could come and update my persona to yeah. pick up the memories you had. And part yeah. of that meaning that, yeah, yeah if you've killed Hallis Martin, but, well, he stored his, his backup, right. you know, a day before, then some other changeling comes along, downloads the right. latest Hallis Martin, and they're almost the same guy. Right, yeah, like the, the, the PCs wouldn't really know the, notice the difference right. unless they intimately know this unless person. Unless they, re- they discover yeah. that he doesn't know what happened in that last 24 right. hours, and maybe that's how they defeat him. Right, yeah, exactly. Wow. That's that's a uh, you just gave me some some new ideas there, Keith. Thank there you. you go. That's my job. <laughs> so uh, I think we got about fifteen minutes left. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what are some other highlights as far as here at DragonCon and uh, things that that you've like uh, well, really I mean, enjoyed? I'll, or I'll definitely say that it's I I really enjoy uh, any chance to talk mm-hmm. with uh, Jason Bowman, Ken yeah. Height. Uh, that you know all of these panels, I felt like. Oh, I love, like, I never considered, oh, a mummy's could have its bandages come to life. I'm like, that's great. That's oh, I'll cool. do something yeah. with that. Yeah. Uh, it's and neat to just sit around and exchange ideas yeah, and, yeah. and feed off each and, other. And, uh, yeah. you know, in the Dungeons panel, I'm, yeah. again, it's not like I can immediately say off the top of my head what the thing was, but there were certainly a lot of things that Jason put on the table that mm-hmm. I thought were very interesting. And one of them was just that point of don't forget that a dungeon doesn't have to be a dungeon. Right. Uh, and that really when you break it down, a dungeon is a coherent series of obstacles between the players and something they want. Right. Uh, whether that's information or uh, a treasure or yeah. a villain. Uh, and I say coherent series of obstacles because I do feel that is part of what defines a dungeon versus a sandbox is, you know, oh, there is a set, you know, linear, uh, yeah. thing that's going to have to go. Uh, but at the same time, a dungeon can be a forest. A dungeon yeah. can be a you know a, a single building, right. you know, a warehouse or whatever right. you have. Yeah, and something you touched on too, uh, mm-hmm. with regards to that, is with a sandbox setting or like in an s- urban environment, for example, mm-hmm. it's pretty open ended, and the PCs right. can do just about anything. Right. Whereas with a dungeon, you get a little bit more of a director, dr- a directed right. approach. And that's the point: is it doesn't yeah. have to be linear. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have they, to they be have a railroad. Yeah. Uh, and yet it is, they're not suddenly going to, you know, unless it's in the forest, they're not going to suddenly decide to, you know, go into the lumber business. Right, right. Unless it's they in the may. forest, and then they will. Yeah. You right. know, uh, nine times out of ten in my experience. Right. Um, any other panel stuff that you want to talk about? Because I have other things. I no, no, let's, about, let's talk about other things. Okay. Cool. So, um, so I have some questions regarding the uh, exploring Eberron mm-hmm. and uh, but also its relationship not just with um, Rise of Rising the Last War? War but also with Wayfinder's Guide and how those three together mm-hmm. might interact uh, in, in your mind how do you see them um, playing together well I mean I I think there's not a lot of direct overlap right. between exploring and Wayfinder's Primarily because, hey, I wrote Wayfinders. You know, there's no reason to cover the same. And in part because the the concrete goal of Wayfinders is this is giving you the bare minimum you need to run an Eberron campaign. Whereas exploring is concretely, now you've got that bare minimum. Let's talk about all the stuff we've always wanted to talk about but that you don't need 
uh, you know, this is the bonus stuff. Right. And again, okay. this is why we haven't had planes ever developed. It's because, well, you don't need them. Right. Uh, and yet, they can be without just be a plot it, device in the yeah, you know. But the know. point is, is that it lets you tell stories that you couldn't tell before because right. you didn't have them. Right. Um, and I think you mentioned something to the effect of like Wayfinders really being sort of primarily for GMs, but but also for players. Oh no! I mean, uh, I definitely see Wayfinders. Or, yeah. I'd say it almost the reverse. I was, I I was, was saying that. that. Yeah. I would but, say but, that. But exploring is more for right. the GM side. Well, what yeah. I would say is Wayfinders is very much aimed as something that players can engage yeah, with. Yeah, because it's, it's how rising, what they learn from about the setting. Uh, rising is something that then adds a lot of content that yeah. that's still there for players, Yeah, but it also adds a significant amount of additional content that is really for game masters. Right, right. Uh, and you can just look to books like The Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, right. uh, where the point is there's a lot of stuff in it that is just, here's a whole bunch of ideas to just how could you put a, an Eberron adventure together yeah. tonight. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and, and this goes to the fact that Rising from the Last War is twice the size of Wayfinders easily. Right. Uh, I would say that exploring certainly... Uh, it leans a little heavier, it leans much heavier to the Game Master than Wayfinders, mm -hmm. because it is about, you know, here's ideas for adventures under the sea, adventures in the plains, you know, things like that. There are certainly lots of interesting things for players. Right. There are new character options. There are just the discussion of, in any of these subjects, well, what if you want to play a character from right. that? You know, as I right. said, I'm going to be talking about the cults, but in all of the cults, there's going to be the, and how could this be how could this apply to a player character right. um you know if you want to play an aquatic character well what are your options mm -hmm. um and uh you know talking about things like everyday magic you know a lot of yeah. that stuff is yes these are you know some magic items a game master could give away but also this is just talking about these are the things you should understand uh that are in the world right. around you right um, like if you were if you're if you were living in this world, these are you the would have access things. to these things. These yeah. are things you take for granted. Right. Essentially, in the point of everyday magic. Right. right. It's not um, like you're looking at it with wonder. You're looking at it like, oh, that's a thing. Of course, no. Yeah. This is this is something we can assume. Right. You know, if I go to a bar, I can get someone to you know heat my drink, drink with quesadillas. Yeah. You know, exactly. Exactly. Um, and and so that's I think what I what I sort of say there is, it's farther down the DM path than Wayfinders and it, it does not repeat anything significant from right. Wayfinders because Wayfinders is about setting that foundation and this is about all the stuff that we always Expanding wanted on. that you never actually needed. Yeah. Do you see yourself doing like another exploring Eberron type Oh, for sure. Going forward? I mean, I would like to because I mean, yeah. just as a point, I'll, you know, let's hit the things it doesn't cover. I'll say the whole west coast of uh, Eberron, you know, uh, the Demon Wastes, the Elding Reaches, You're right. uh, yeah. Shadow the Shadow Marches. marches. Yeah. Uh, you know, those are all, all three of those are interesting yeah. topics that I could see uh, delving into Absolutely. more depth. Yeah. Um, so it is definitely the case that the things that are not covered in this book are not things that I just don't want to cover. It's just had to draw the line somewhere. And so I'd love to if... if it does well you know again that sort of ultimately yeah. comes down to the thing is it takes a long time to put this together uh and ultimately is it successful enough to be worth it i i have a feeling it will be 
if, uh, I hope if it's so. worth anything. Uh, because, yeah, uh, I'd love to do more. Yeah. Uh, one last thing I want to touch on that I thought was interesting. You talked a little bit about the uh, the patron, uh, what was it, patron backgrounds? Was that what it was called? Uh, group patrons. Group, group patrons, that's what it was, group patrons. Um, that was, And that's coming out of Rising. Uh, that's coming out of Rising. War. And, again, and, uh, I can't say too much about it. Uh, yeah. But, you know, as I said, it's on the table of content, so people know it's there. And it right. is that basic concept of let's come up with a background for our whole party yeah like let us agree at the start that we are inquisitives or that we are templars Mm -hmm. of the silver flame or we are spies right you know we're dark lanterns right and that tied to those organizations that are available uh and that part of the point of that is that it is a way to say what kind of story are we telling Right. You know, that we are not just a random group of mercenary murder hobos. Right. Yeah. You know, that there is a story we're telling. And I always, you know, like to say that, uh, um, you know, I think of playing a game as it's almost like I'm watching a TV show or something mm-hmm. like that. And we're basically saying, I don't randomly turn on the TV and say, I don't know, let's just, you know, I'll watch whatever's on. I say, I feel like watching a spy show tonight. Right. Or right. I'm going to watch this, uh, you know, uh, this crime show. And mm-hmm. this is saying, we want a story where we are all part of the Bormor clan. And, right. you know, it's going to be Sopranos and Eberron. Right. And uh, this is just supporting that idea. And I think that's something that uh, and the concept is definitely the way it's presented in Rising it's not limited this is not something you could only do in Eberron uh, but it's presenting that idea from an Eberron right. for you know, Eberron. direction right yeah Yeah. by the way I love the fact when you, when you mentioned the uh, Sopranos the <laughs> in, during the panel the audience seemed to love that idea yeah <laughs> so, well uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's a thing I've always wanted to do as a campaign yeah I've liked oh, yeah. the idea of especially with the point that the Boromar clan is the less violent yeah uh, syndicate uh, I really love the Vlad Taltash books by Stephen Bruce. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And I've always wanted to do that thing of say, well, let's have a group. One of you is is the boss, right. you know, of this little territory. We're going to give you a crappy little territory. You know, you own these four blocks in Kalistan. Yeah. One of you is the boss. One of you, you know, the rogue's going to be like your enforcer. Yeah. Uh, or the barbarian's your enforcer. That'd you know, the, the bards, your sort of, like, face, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and just sort of saying like what's the roles we all play and then playing it where our thing is not we're going out on random adventures it's like how are we defending the territory, the territory and the people yeah. you know in it from right. violence with Dask how right. are we forming an alliance with House Tarkanon how yeah. are we dealing with our rivals in the clan itself right uh, and I've always thought that would be a fun in part it's it's the same way I'm doing my Kabara campaign. Mm. of this idea of we're going to give you a place you care about that you know this is your town and we're saying from the start of the adventure this is not about traveling the world this is about making sure your town survives and thrives your investment in this Uh, and that we know we're going to be here for at least 10 or 12 adventures and this is what you should care about right uh, and so that same concept. And if something bad happens, it's up to you to fix it. Right. You know, you're if if half the town burns down, you got to live with that. It's right. not like suddenly next adventure everything's reset. Right. Right. There's a there's a really cool um, and this a little bit off topic, but I'm bringing it back. There's a really cool Savage World setting that just came out, or is, is, I think it's gonna be Kickstarter in the future called Wise Guys, and it's all about role playing that mob, you know, mm-hmm. mafia type thing. And my first thought was like Bormar Clan. 
Yep. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to bring that into everyone, and I'm going to I'm going to yep. use that as a resource for that type of campaign. No, and as I say, to yeah. me, that's part of the role of the Boromar clan is they can be enemies, but they're also the easiest organization to actually work with, right? Because they are the least violent, right? And whereas Dask. Not that you can't work with Desk, and we provide suggestions even in Wayfinder's Guide, but part of the point is that they are a chaotic, disruptive, violent force. Yeah. And that uh, they are likely something that you are more going to have to be dealing with uh, than if you are allied with them, well, then you are working with the storm. Right, and, right, you know, right. you can certainly do that, yeah, but it's yeah. going to, you know... There's risks and... Uh, uh, well, yeah. it's just you're part of a more destructive force. Right, right. So uh, we're we're getting close to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other things that you want to drop on uh, this recording? Um, no, no. I'm I'm very much looking forward to our our upcoming yeah. getting the usual gang together to yes. talk about goblins. And we know we owe you that. We listeners. do. Apologies, but I'm sure you've been enjoying at least some of the stuff we've been throwing out there mm-hmm. for you all. Um, but yes, goblins. We're going to get to that, and uh, it'll be great. All right. So, uh, well, cool. All right. I think let's let's call it good. Yeah, sounds good. And uh, until next time, keep exploring. <laughs>